Hello. Hey, Finn. Up here. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you joined Teal Capital, as well as the types of things you're working on uh, these days. What did I say? I guess I uh, went to Harvard undergrad and uh, Wharton for MBA, PhD in uh, economics and um, sort of management and applied um, manage, uh, sorry, uh, man- management science and uh, applied economics. And I joined Morgan Stanley after that and did uh, a couple of rotations through uh, real estate um, sponsors, uh, M&A, and uh, media telecom, and spent some time in media telecom there. And then in 2008, I guess, I left and joined Peter Thiel. Um, at the time, it was Clarium Capital, um, where I did global macro for a while, and then transferred over to what is now Teal Capital, where I now work on private investing. Um, a lot of my investments are in specialty finance. And I've been living in San Francisco for the last uh, six or seven years, working on uh, private investments. And so my fintech focus has come out of sort of mostly out of interest um, and my own proclivity towards that area, and partially out of a top-down macro analysis we did four or five years ago where we sort of thought structurally what we thought the most interesting areas were and why we thought they were interesting and what characteristics um, we thought would, would lead to a sort of a, a second um, a VC um, environment um, for new start to, to fund new startups. Um, and it turned out that sort of the biggest thing we saw was uh, on a structural level, the pullback of banks after 2008, both because of sort of uh, the, cra- the financial crisis, which caused them to be more sort of uh, cautious, just sort of psychologically, um, and also from government regulation and uncertainty um, and, 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 uh, and requirements for higher, you know, higher, um, higher um, uh, sort of lower risk limits and higher, um, and higher sort of um, reserves. Uh, and, and so we thought all that was pretty important. And then secondly, we sort of, we, we generally came up with a thesis that we didn't think it was a technology that would cause fintech to be productive, but rather it was sort of the, it was the disaggregation of the larger universal banks. So even, even to this day, and we can talk about this in more depth, I don't think fintech is, is primarily a tech-driven um, um, uh, sort of boom. I think it's primarily a business model-driven boom. Got it. Um, so on the, on the sort of topic of the tech element, um, you talked about sort of the biggest drivers from the sort of the innovation and disruption in fintech coming more on sort of the banking side. So you talked about the financial crisis, the government regulation, greater uncertainty, and higher capital reserves. I guess, are there certain elements within uh, technology, whether it's um, the ease of which uh, startups can actually grow businesses, uh, mm-hmm. less regulation from fintech startups? Are there certain sort of catalysts on the technology standpoint that also made it uh, made it possible? Um, huh. So I guess the question, the question there is, would, would, would the startups of today been possible a decade ago? I think when you look at the sophistication of Capital One, Capital One is much more much more um much more um uh sophisticated than I, I almost every startup nowadays and it, it existed you know um a long time ago was founded and it had had its true breakthroughs using machine learning using big data if which we should define better using you know uh, analytics direct mail uh you know online 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 customer acquisition and servicing so did it do so in a more expensive way? Yes, it was probably more expensive for them to do what they were doing. They didn't have the Amazon cloud. They didn't have, um, you know, various, you know, um, uh, 
loan uh, under underwriting um, sort of um, algorithms that we might we might already have some best in class or you know have gotten better at at a base, at a base level. Um, it probably didn't have as good data, so just collecting that data that it needed on some customers might have been more expensive. I think it's undoubtedly true that they had the ability to do it and the sophistication to do it. It might have been just more expensive and more difficult. Got it. Um, and I guess we, as we think sort of broadly about this new uh, this new tech boom, um, a lot of it has been in enterprise software, uh, consumer-facing apps, healthcare. It seems like with fintech, the boom only really came in 2013 and 2014. Do you have a sense for why, or a general thesis for why uh, innovation and disruption sort of took uh, took fintech a little longer? And, and and I know you talked about the trends that happened in 2008, but what were sort of the other catalysts um, mm-hmm. that, that I guess sort of provided sort of larger barriers for innovation in fintech? Mm. So I can cl- clarify the question there. What what were the barriers to startups in fintech into that, that caused them to not start till 2013 or 14? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I guess with fintech companies specifically, they took a little bit longer than, um, you know, the consumer-facing companies, you know, Facebook, Mm -hmm. um, Snapchat, a lot of these other companies were able to grow much more quickly. I I guess, is there something intrinsic to financial technology and and financial services that sort of led it to sort of be on a a sort of slower path? Gosh, so uh, great question. I think that you know, uh, in uh, you know, when you look at the, the the largest five banks in the United States, um, you know, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and maybe I guess one of those four, the largest four banks, you know, they they have consistently held about 50% of the assets. And I think the mistake that people made pre 20 pre the financial crisis, but certainly pre um, 2013 before the before the fintech boom, is that these guys were. I, I don't think people thought they were competent, but they thought that the advantages of scale dominated the advantages of, you know, the entrepreneurial hustle that a startup might have now or the idea of being, like, light and efficient. So if you remember, like, the idea, of, the idea of a universal bank was extremely attractive. People thought it was extremely attractive for good reasons. Citigroup wanted to be mm-hmm. able to do your bank account. They wanted to give you loans. They wanted to give you your house. They wanted to basically, once you got a relationship with Citigroup, they thought that that relationship would lead to lower cost of customer acquisition, um, the ability to, to service, to cross-sell people products that you knew they needed um, when they needed them. So there's all these data advantages. There's all this um, marketing advantages. There's all these relationship and trust advantages. There's just a convenience advantage. You already have your money with them. You already have everything they pull from their own bank account. So they sort of thought that, that if you owned a customer, you could extract more value from that customer. Um, the, I, th- I, think, I think that idea is no longer believed. So that's an idea that was believed that's no longer believed. And I think it turns out that banks have a few areas that are highly profitable and everything else basically lost the money or wasn't worth it. And it turns out that whatever small advantages you might get from that cheaper marketing or, or trust level are dominated by the fact that fintech companies in 2013 and 2014 and maybe a tiny bit earlier realized they could disintermediate the most valuable parts of banking and they could do slightly new twists not dramatically new, but slightly new, and really start breaking into, um, I would argue, payday lending as an early area, SMB, small and medium business credit, consumer credit, purchase finance, um, you know, as we see now with, um, with lots and lots of guys like, like, um, like, um, like um, uh, Max Levchin's new company, um, Affirm, uh, education yep. finance, as we see with SoFi, 
and real estate as an emerging area, as well as I'd add insurance as an emerging area. And these are just like, if you think about, if you think about lending club, it's like banks were just making 20%, no matter who you were every year on overdrawn credit cards, even if it was you or if it was a guy with, you know, unemployed guy with no, um, with no, with no source of income and, and who never graduated from a higher degree. And the irony of that is that obviously your chances of default were way lower, but they just sort of knew they could charge everyone 20%. So when Lending Club comes around and says, hey, guys, I'm going to refinance that for 12%, it's not just that the banks are like, oh, no, we have to be more competitive. It's that the banks now have to like give up these massive margins and these easy businesses and knows that everyone who overdraws their credit cards is just going to go to Lending Club and take out a loan. All of a sudden, it's gone from a source of massive profit where they could subsidize the rest of the bank and all the branches something where they have to be competitive in every single area. And as soon as you be competitive in every single area, you're basically unable to do all these other areas that, that, that were only profitable as lost leaders or as like, you know, supporting institutions. So we've seen the death of equity, of equity research in investment banks. We've seen the decline of, you know, of, um, of, of, of generally speaking of like of, of customer service in banks. We've seen the decline of the branch network in banks. And I would just argue that banks just can't support all this other stuff without these core areas being competitive, being uncompetitive, that is being monopolies and being high margin. Mm -hmm. And I think the fintech revolution is starting to, and as far as you want to call it that, it's starting to make it so that banks can, will soon, not yet, but will soon no longer be able to depend upon these fat profit margins in these areas of monopolistic advantage. And, they, and that means that banks will transform radically. So I think it's ironic that banks have gotten bigger in the last five years than they were uh, in 2008. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the, the thing that's ironic about it is that they've only gotten bigger in some sense of the word of assets under management. They've not gotten more comprehensive in the way they service you. They've not gotten better. They've not gotten more sophisticated. They've not gotten, they've gotten more profitable, but only in, a, in the sense of low interest rates, um, you know, low interest rate environment and sort of like this positive carry. The irony, of course, is that in 10 years, no, all this talk about breaking up the banks is silly because in a way in 10 years, we all know the banks are going to be smaller. Because the banks are not going to be able to, they're going to all be fragmented into many, many pieces. At least in my opinion, I don't mean to imply this is this is absolute or or or, un, or you know unchangeable. In my opinion, all these banks are going to break up and fragment because they simply aren't competitive once you take away the monopolies. So if the government would relax, could continue to keep regulation relaxed and allow small fintech competitors to compete with banks in their most profitable areas, the end result will be large depository holding institutions and regulated banks, which basically hold capital in, in, uh, in deposits and that, and that allow others to, um, others to originate loans for them and others to do all the services for them and will sort of work with others in APIs and integrations. And these will be safe depository institutions that will have less risk of going bankrupt because they'll be more diversified. And the government will worry less about their sort of fundamental ability to be too big to fail. And that's sort of where it's going. Interesting. So tons of questions that emanate from what you just said. Um, But as a quick aside, you'd mentioned that you see uh, banks as sort of having a very interesting sclerotic perspective on, uh, you know, on their growth. Um, But more specifically, I want to chat quickly about their branch networks. So ING Direct had introduced their, essentially their branchless banking model from 2000 to 2008, uh, which were very good at gathering deposits, not so good at actually generating assets. Yep. Um, yep. In general, uh, and I, I've seen a few research reports from and a few investor presentations from J.P. Morgan about how they're actually planning to strategically grow their banking franchise and their retail footprint. So I guess uh, this is a very broad question, so feel free to answer it um, in, in whatever way you interpret. But 
in general, how do you actually see the trend towards growing a bank branch footprint? So from one hand, from one standpoint, it obviously adds to a bank's cost structure, but on the other standpoint, you know, if they're able to actually solicit and generate uh, consumer relationships face-to-face, sure. there would seem like there's an argument to be made in favor of at least keeping some of them, if not a lot of them. Sure. I mean, I think this becomes a, I don't, I don't, I haven't done deep research on this topic, but uh, I think it becomes a generational thing. Me and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my thirties, but you know, me and anyone younger than me say, um, I think that we don't have any interest in walking into a bank and doing business in a bank. I think ATMs and the, and the, and our, our, our mobile devices and maybe our computers are more than enough. And even ATMs mm-hmm. are becoming less and less relevant as we, as I get cash once every month now, instead of once every, you know, once a week. Um, mm-hmm. And so, look, I, I, I just I do everything online. I post my checks online. I pay my bills online. And I do it all, hopefully, through my mobile phone. So, to mm-hmm. me, the branch network is really for a demographic and a customer segment that still wants to go to the bank. Um, and I think that's a legitimate customer segment. My parents, my parents still go to the bank all the time. And I don't mean to make this a generational thing like old versus young. You know, I just think that there are some people who are going to prefer that. But I really do think that the habits created – in a Facebook, mobile, online, younger generation, I don't think any of those guys are going to want to go anywhere for anything. I think they order on Amazon, they get things on Uber, they want to go to do, the, do their banking mobile. I think the general trend, and forget about like the specific people, the general trend is just towards um, more, more um, less, less physical presence when you're doing things and less ownership mm-hmm. of you know, land and more sort of like, So I, I ask you this, like, if, if, if my mom could call up a phone number and just talk in a natural, in a natural conversational tone with somebody, a person or an AI sort of a natural language process uh, bot, and ask her questions and get stuff done for her and, and have things delivered and have you know, transactions completed, and other than getting cash, I just don't know why she'd want to go talk to somebody. And I think even my mom, who generally speaking likes people more than, uh, more than doing things online, uh, I think even mm-hmm. she, if it worked well, if it worked well enough, would have no problem. Um, I mean, look. So, I mean, the, the, on the flip side of that, you know, companies like Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan continue to pump tons of money into branches. But I suspect mm-hmm. it's more as a different. I suspect it's more as a differentiator, and I suspect it's more in very specific places. So it's like, you know, in New York City and San Francisco, there's just a, a lot of very, very wealthy people, and so in those cities in particular, these banks want to have a big presence to own those customers, and those customers are very valuable. I don't see why they need to have large. I mean, and, and in small towns, you want a bank uh, for various reasons that uh, only a physical location could solve. But I do think the need for lots of banks and lots of tertiary locations does seem does seem to be going down. What do you think? Got I it. mean, do you, do you agree? You see, you asked the question. You asked. The, I sort of surprised by the question because it seemed like you dis, you either thought that you either disagreed or had a thought on it. Yeah, so um, I think it's an interesting perspective, right? I think um, there was a report in the Financial Times recently that showed that banks with uh, with more uh, with more branches in certain locations actually tend to weather credit cycles better. And mm-hmm. part of what the thesis was around it is the fact that uh, they are better able to judge credit environments by talking to their consumers and actually seeing mm-hmm. what's happening, being on the ground. Um, now there, mm-hmm. there, you know, obviously there are countervailing arguments you can make about correlation versus causation, and mm-hmm. banks that are, you know, that that have the capital to have branches are better able to sustain down credit cycles. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was a very interesting report, and and the general mm-hmm. theme and thesis seems to be exactly to to your point, which is that, um, you know, banks are being are rationalizing their bank branches and, and footprints. But I just thought it was an interesting sort of counterpoint um, 
But, you know, uh, yeah. I, I do. I haven't read that. General, I'd love uh, to. I'll read that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll send it over to you. Um, so one of the points you made was that um, earlier was that there is going to be a very, I don't know if you want to call it complete, but there is going to be a very significant unbundling of banking where the way we conceive about banks now is basically as, as you, as you know, in your words, as regulated financial institutions <laughs> that take deposits and uh, have other parties that originate loans and perform a lot of the functions that they're doing now. Yes, just want to understand, uh, what do you sort of see as the threats to that actual vision? I mean, are there a couple of trends, whether they be regulatory or otherwise, that actually would prevent that from happening? Great question. Uh, yeah, I can think of a, I think, I think of a lot. I can think of a couple that could push against that. So, first of all, I just want to recognize that the idea of um, of centrality versus um, versus distribution, that is distributed systems versus centralized systems, is a is a is a is a ebb and flow kind of thing where we it often ha- it often is the case that you get centralized that leads to distributed that leads to centralized. An example of this would be, you know, um, you had a, a human civilization living in small towns and villages with much more decentralized. You then saw enormous value in integrating people with religion and other th- other things, which created enormous value, and then integration through countries or first cities and then countries. And now we have international bodies. So the coordination of, say, militaries got much more centralized. Um, on the flip side of that, we had you know, an integration of computers with mainframes and large com- computers, and we had a disintegration to lots and lots of laptops. And maybe now with cloud services and lots of, um, of like, um, digitalization, uh, virtualization rather, we have more centralization in certain pieces of the, of the, um, of the, corporate, of the corporate infrastructure. So it's like... It is a case that we have waves of, of centralization and waves of distribution. So I think it should be recognized that, like, it's probably not a one-way thing like, um, like heat in the universe where it's always getting more dispersed. Like, it actually is the case that some structures and things create more need for centralization and some economic and, and sort of and, 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 um, and financial structures create more distribution. And so the interesting question is what leads to distribution and what leads to centralization? And... My claim here would be that you know we're in a distribution sort of erring towards more de- uh, more um, more di- more distribution more disaggregated um, uh, networks. Uh, the threats to that would be I think number one the government. I think government regulation could really shut down a lot of the fintech stuff that's happening, and it could really benefit and advantage the banks. Uh, I think the threat to number two would be really really expensive but super superior versions of artificial intelligence or machine learning, where all of a sudden, big banks could invest a billion dollars in a unbelievably good customer service, um, uh, or artificial intelligence, or natural language processing or, um, customer service system, where I could call up and just speak naturally, and it would do all this stuff that was really, really good. And I think that basically mm-hmm. that would be. I think basically startups couldn't compete with that if they if if, if they didn't have some alternate. And I could see a case where you know Facebook, for example, you know just was much was much just 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 developed a system which was so much better at this stuff that you couldn't compete as a startup um mm-hmm. i mean number three i'd say th- there's there's just there's just the fact that a monopolistic large centralized coordinated scale bank is a very powerful and intelligent thing which should be competitive with any startup i think our intuition is that startups are somehow better i think that intuition is often mm-hmm. wrong it's often a case that there's reasons why large companies are large companies. They're very good at what they do. They're very, they have deep roots. They have deep knowledge, and they have, um, and they have a lot of resources. And they have a lot of economies of scale, and this is actually very hard to combat. 
So for startups to win, it has to be a very special environment with very particular characteristics that allow small, non-scaled players to, to, to be able to both raise the capital and be able to compete with large-scaled players. So there's nothing, there's nothing, and I, I framed it earlier probably too deterministically, there's nothing deterministic about, about startups winning in any space. Um, it, startups mm -hmm. are often best, startups are often do the best when they enter into new spaces that didn't exist before, or when they displace mm -hmm. former, former institutions by doing something differently that the former institutions aren't doing, but that in some ways are a replacement for the other way, rather than going head-to-head -head against established institutions, which is, which is by far of those three strategies in my opinion, historically, the worst strategy for a startup to, to pursue. Interesting. Um, so on the topic of how um, banks have actually been working with these startups, there are really two data points that I want to specifically talk through. One is uh, JP Morgan's partnership with OnDeck for mm -hmm. uh, essentially acting as uh, lead generation for SMB loans. And the second is uh, Santander's sale of the assets that it initially agreed to buy from Lending Club. So mm -hmm. it seems like uh, these. It seems like the banks have taken a strategy of uh, of at least cooperation with the fintech players. Now, uh, mm -hmm. do you see that uh, sort of being sustainable? And do you see that as being the trend down the line, or are banks simply entering into partnerships now to try, test, and learn, and see what they can build on their own? Uh, so much, so much, so much to say here. Um, on the act, so I'll point out there's sort of three buckets, right? There's organic launches where you've seen uh, established players launch versions of fintech, um, versions of fintech products that weren't before. Charles Schwab launching a robo advisor. You know, Blackstone Group um, launching Lending.com, which is expected in, uh, which is which is just um, which is just in 2016. Uh, Vanguard during doing a robo advisor. You know, Goldman Sachs launching a loan platform, Square launching Square Capital, Amazon starting to build out Amazon Capital Services, Google launching Compare, both folding and then relaunching uh, supposedly an insurance, an insurance compare product and a financial compare product, as well as, as, well as the ones you mentioned. Um, you mentioned, too, where there were sort of alliances, and, that, and your, examples are, your examples are correct. You have a bank buying loans from... Uh, originators, you've had um, OnDeck and JP Morgan align with each other. You've had some other joint ventures where you know people have started to pursue various types of sort of cooperative responses. And then you've had acquisitions, right? So the acquisitions that, that are obvious are you know BBVA buying Simple, uh, Northwestern Mutual buying LearnVest, uh, BlackRock buying Future Advisor, and then in conversations now, and not publicly, uh, I've, I've heard rumors of, and then no, no substantiation or much detail on, lots of larger financial players starting to look at and sniff around some of the distressed platforms. I mean, you know, if, if in fact a lot of these companies raise money in elevated environments, and if in fact public markets are valuing Lending Club and, and uh, on deck correctly, it will be the case that a lot of the larger private companies will have trouble raising at the same valuation as they raised that last time. And if they run out of money, they may have to do some kind of deal or some sale or some joint venture or something. So I think the next couple of years will, will show us which of these three buckets it falls in, whether it's the cooperation bucket, the organic launch, the competition bucket, or organic launch bucket, or the acquisition bucket. If I had to guess, I'd say the shorter-term trend was, would be acquisitions. And the longer-term trend would be what you mentioned, which is joint ventures. And I say that because I do think, in my opinion, in my analysis, the banks are moving much more towards a 
more regulated, less aggressive, um, smaller products, more depository institution model. And I think that that mm -hmm. implies that they need to keep the loan origination both for regulatory as well as for um, as well as for complexity reasons external to their sort of walled gardens. And so that means that they do things like JP Morgan's deal with OnDeck, where they say, hey, OnDeck, you help us originate in certain areas where we're not super good, and we'll use our balance sheet and our customer relationships to do that. That makes a lot of sense to me. But look, there's no reason why Goldman Sachs couldn't launch really aggressively in certain segments and do a really good job at personal lending. You know, they <laughs> see that as an opportunity. And there's no reason why BlackRock can't buy, you know, uh, you know, can't buy Future Advisor and do a great job with robo-advising. You know, you give, you <laughs> give a, you know, there's some good robo-advisor out there. Um, I think Betterment's a good example, but like, who have a good company. But like, in truth, what, what, what's, what's obvious is that their ability to scale is limited. You know, when Charles Schwab launched a robo-advisor, they had more assets under management in a couple of months than all the, this is to my, uh, I, don't, I didn't do a close study of this, but my, to my memory, than all of the robo-advisors in the world that had launched previous. And when recently Vanguard launched, I think they have twice as much as everyone else combined now. And so it's like, mm -hmm. it's unclear what the competitive advantage of a, robo, of a new robo-advisor is, except that they have this sort of, they've acquired a customer and there's some tax difficulties in switching firms, although minor, frankly, because of harvesting and the, some of the strategies they use, and sort of general sclerotic desire not to move once you've done something. But like, it's, it's unclear, right? It's unclear why established players can't compete with some of these products. Yep. That certainly makes sense. Um, though, I guess the question becomes, uh, they, to your point, they've got inherent scale advantages. They've got, you know, relationships with regulators already. But the two you meant, the two strategies you mentioned were cooperation in the short term and then, uh, and then potentially acquisitions longer term. Or, or sorry, vice versa, acquisition shorter yeah, terms and then yeah. cooperation. Because I, um, I think the next couple of years are probably going to be difficult, and so there's going to be more opportunities to, like, say, oh, gosh, I can't raise money, or, oh, gosh, I need help. And then, you know, the big banks will say, this is pretty cheap for a billion dollars for, 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 you know, let's just, I mean, on deck is a good example. Is on deck trading at 500 million bucks right now in the public market? Is that expensive for JP Morgan to buy? It almost just sort of feels like JP Morgan could snap them up pretty easily. And, and you'd have to really convince me why JP Morgan would rather joint venture with a $500 million company versus just buy 50% of them. Or 100%. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, and I, I, by the way, I have no knowledge if they're going to do this or, or any idea if they will, but you just, they have to be thinking about it, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one other point I really want to suss out more is, and, and we've alluded to this a couple of times, is just the topic of regulation because it seems to be at a bit of a double-edged sword from the bank's perspective. So on one hand, they have the relationships, relationships uh with regulators, they already have fully built out compliance and regulatory functions mm -hmm. at the companies. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, a lot of these fintech players like Lending Club, um, on deck, not structured as a bank, um, uh, they've sort of uh, they've been very clever in terms of their regulatory aspect in that they're not taking deposits mm -hmm. and they're circumventing a lot of the more onerous regulations. But it seems like, given the fact that they need to you know register their uh, their notes with the SEC and given Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court ruling that's coming up on Midland, it seems like that mm -hmm. regulatory framework and advantage that the fintech players have might be going away. So I guess the broader question is, mm -hmm. if you were to really apply a, a, the, a lens of uh, regulatory sort of element mm -hmm. to the unbundling of banks, I guess wh where do you sort of see it shaking out? Do you see it as being 
an advantage from the banks and something that they could leverage, or do you see it as something more from the disruptor perspective where, uh, you know, they've been clever to circumvent it and can continue to sort of exploit that going forward? Uh, that's a great point. Uh, I think it's unclear, but in my opinion, it's the the significance of regulation to on banks and the, to prevent them from competing with with some players and launching new products and innovating has been has been has been is hard to underestimate. Um, I think that banks are really constrained. They're constrained because they're large institutions that have a hard time programming well. So just launch launching good innovative programs just because of institutional lack of uh, you know it's hard to get large institutions to build good software and to start new products that take risks. But it's also just the fact that like banks are just in unbelievably regulated from the, you know, uh, from the financial stability oversight council to the federal reserve board, the office of the controller, you know, the depository insurance corporation, the sec, the CFTC, the CFPB. I mean, the list is just list is long. And I think banks are mm-hmm. so highly regulated that they have a huge advantage but they're also so highly uh, in terms of like being compliant and having it be hard to be compliant. But they also it's also the case that they have to comply with a lot more regulations. And so when you have a SoFi or an OnDeck, um, they're they're just doing stuff that J.P. Morgan and and Wells Fargo would never be willing to do or be able to do. And from the regulator perspective, you could see this two ways. You could say, okay, you should leave a uh, you know you should leave there to be sandboxes of less regulation for startups to play in to see if something good comes out of it. And then if it's real, we'll regulate it when it gets bigger and more substantial and proves itself out to be useful. I think that's, a, that's the strategy that a lot of regulators are using now, like the CFPB. I think that's an okay one. The second way of looking at this would be, oh, gosh, we've regulated finance too much or in the wrong way. Let's pull back. Certainly not the approach regulators are taking. And the third would be, wait a second here, money's kind of an important thing. Like, we should really, really regulate banks, which hold people's capital, we should make their, sure they're responsible and thoughtful. And then we should allow this there to be a whole other area of, sort of say, shadow banking and, other ba- and non-financial institutions, which, is, which, which can take more risks and do more stuff, and, and they, they're less regulated inherently. And I think that's, that would be a plausible direction that you could see the world going in, um, or the sandbox one. Um, I, I ultimately, I mean, to your question, I ultimately don't think that there's going to be a blending of regulatory, uh, of regulatory structures for banks and everyone else. And the reason I say that is just, I think everyone else would go out of business if that were the case. I think banks would just be monopolies. Similar to the tobacco industry now, where you're not going to probably see many competitors in straight cigarettes after, you know, the fines and regulations were imposed, maybe e-cigarettes and other mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like, I just don't, I think if you, if you uniform, uniformly applied regulation to small fintech startups, they simply couldn't, in many cases, handle the level of, level of scrutiny and the level of, of a compliance required. And I, I, you know, I, I don't think compliant regulation is bad inherently, but I think that regulation which prevents innovation is not, it does a disservice to, um, to, to consumers who want more. Got it. It makes perfect sense. Um, so one last question for you, and again, really appreciate your time and perspective. This has been, uh, this has been great. Um, Thank you. But in terms of what you're seeing in the investing landscape, do you see any other major fintech trends sort of emerging from an investing standpoint? Yeah. Um, so, first of all, I think that the landscape for investing in fintech has gotten harder in the last year. I'm talking harder because mm-hmm. gotten harder because um, I think you know it, it's possible we've got we've started a turn in the credit cycle, which positive credit cycle, virtuous credit cycle, you know, uh, was was really helpful to lenders who got lower and lower default rates and didn't have to worry about that. So they all called themselves geniuses for great underwriting models. We will see if those underwriting mm-hmm. models are great. 
Um, secondly, it's hard mm-hmm. because their cost of capital and their ability to off, offload whole loans to the market has gone down. So you've, you mentioned the Prosper, the recent Prosper um, securization. Uh, you know, it's, it's just mm-hmm. way harder to get rid of your loans if you're a flow business instead of a balance sheet business and way harder to borrow money from banks and from, you know, whatever kinds of uh, facilities you're using if you are a balance sheet business. Um, and, and, and lastly, um, I, I think that, you know, people have just gotten more skeptical evaluations and the growth in, in as far as that growth has come from buying loans, that is top line growth has become less valued in FinTech than it was a year ago, where if you grew fast, you got more money and with that more money, you could grow fast. And you saw companies buying volume and then growing and buying more volume and growing and buying more volume and growing. And I think that model has become less. I think people are more focused on margins. I think they're more focused on core technology on defensibility and barriers to entry, and, um, and, on, and, and on basically on, um, on, on sort of thoughtful, thoughtful compliance and regulation um, uh, to, to our earlier conversation. But the areas I'm excited about, I guess, um, I think there's a lot of hype on real estate and insurance, and I think it's deservedly so, but I think the, that, those areas will take longer than people think to become, to, to build super uh, companies. Um, so I think that, you know, insurance is probably, there's a couple of decent insurance companies out, but largely in healthcare, insurance or some iteration of that. A couple of emerging players in car insurance, though there's conversations about how long that will last in the era of self-driving cars. Um, but maybe that's, maybe there's something there. And then, but in general insurance, I think it'll take longer. I think there will be disruption. I think just the cycle of iteration and uh, testing and technology and compliance is higher. So I think it'll take longer, but in four or five years, I think that could be a really promising area and maybe even with investments, investment opportunities in two or three. But I'm, more, I'm a little bit more cautious there. In real estate, I think that on the fringes, there's opportunities. But banks continue to do a pretty decent job, not in the experience of originating mortgages, but in the practical prices of mortgages. So I think it's harder to compete with banks on, more, on core mortgage markets. But in terms of servicing them, having new UIs, having new processes for loan origination, having, more, having a better on the fringe, non-conforming loans, uh, higher uh, loan-to-value loans, those are areas in which startups can have promise. You know, there's been a lot of, there's been some conversations about um, natural language processing and the ability to have a new interface with your bank and a new interface with your financial institution, which is more natural. I think that could be really good for finance. I think finance is, is, is tends to be, have bad interfaces and be confusing. And I think a more natural sort of natural language AI kind of approach towards banks is good. But I think the area that's most exciting to me is that, you know, 50% of people in the United States alone, much less the world, are severely underbanked or non-banked, and they have no access to financial institutions. And if there's one thing that big banks are not doing well, it's reaching out to the general population and allowing people to have general access to financial services. And I'm not talking here about payday. I'm talking here about the ability to have a bank account, the ability to have a credit card, the ability to, even, even if it's a debit card, the ability to have basic ability to, to, to use and interact with, to borrow money when you really need it for some real reason. Um, at reasonable rates, mm-hmm. the ability to send money to your relatives in other countries. These are areas where poor people have gotten, um, have gotten the short end of the stick in, in, in finance because they haven't been serviced and they've been charged a lot when they were. And there are reasons for both of those. But I think part of the reason is the high regulation on banks that, needs high, that need high-margin profitable customers and weren't willing to look for pennies um, in smaller customers with less margin products. But I think more nimble fintech companies emerging now are starting to focus on those areas and companies like even Bitcoin, which I'm skeptical about in the short term, has the potential in the longer term to radically change the ways in which 
these customers are serviced and, and, and the fees they pay. And I think that of all mm-hmm. the areas in fintech that I think is most exciting for changing the world and really radically improving people's lives, I, I think those that underbanked are the place to look, and I think it would be a pretty good investment thesis too. Interesting. Um, and I guess the last question, are there certain companies, uh, either domestically or internationally, that are doing interesting things with the un- and underbanked? Uh, and uh, from a geographic standpoint, um, obviously they're – you know, the number you quoted uh, in terms of underbanked consumers, I've, I've seen numbers of 60 to 70 million underbanked consumers. Do you see any other sort of impetuses in the United States for sort of catering better to the un- and underbanked? Uh, I mean, I hesitate, to, I hesitate to list companies just because I think there's a lot of people doing it that I might not know about. Um, but, I, but, mm-hmm. uh, but more generally, without naming specific companies, I'll say more generally, the approaches I've seen that have been really good is, you know, I think the FICO score is very balanced against uh, underbanked and unbanked and unusual people, uh, un, sort of un, misunderstood um, people in, in that in that segment. And I think, therefore, companies mm-hmm. that are starting to look at more than a FICO score using alternate data, I think that machine learning and alternate data has allowed entire new areas. So let's just think about it. FICO score is one number. Now, there's other data under that. Some companies look at other data as well. But effectively, it's one number that most people use. But when you use machine learning, machine learning doesn't care about that one number. It simply continues to iterate around ways of cutting data and people to explore smaller and smaller smaller segments so that every person basically gets their own underwriting model. And when you think about it, if you go back 40 or 50 years in America and you had small community banks where, you know, you walked in, like Mr. Smith, you know, what's, what's that movie, A Christmas Tale or whatever, where, like, you know, Jimmy Stewart walks in and he's a personal bank and he, like, he treats everyone like an individual human being. That was like a nice mm-hmm. way of banking because you knew that guy was in trouble, but you knew he was like a pretty responsible, a good dad, a responsible guy. Uh, uh, you know, uh, she, she had a small business in, in, the, in the town. And so you knew that these people were worth backing. And then we moved to this universal model where banks just made decisions based on FICO scores and really abstract data. But the technology wasn't good enough to get really super segmented. So I think you've got a lot of people mm-hmm. falling through the cracks. And I think with, with, more, more, with more rigorous and more sophisticated technology and alternate data sources, like even like Facebook and LinkedIn, or just like more, more, more detailed, the way you type in your name on a website, um, the, 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 the tons of information they have on you on the web, for all the downsides in terms of violation of privacy, the upside for the underbanked is that increasingly technology will start treating them more as individuals, or at least in smaller category segments and therefore allow them to be banked in appropriate ways um, uh, better than bigger banks with more gross measures and more and more sort of heuristics were able to bank them. So that's the general approach I take when you're looking for startups that service the underbanked. Who is treating people in more refined ways? Who is allowing them to have services and products that improve their life, don't just attract? So the problem with payday historically was that its goal was to extract the most number of dollars in the shortest amount of time from people who are poor. And that, is, that intuitively tr- strikes us all as really bad. It may or may not be illegal, but it's bad. It's not, it's not good. People a year after taking a payday loan in this, in this narrative would be worse off than they would if they tried something else. And that strikes us as not a good way for financial services institutions, for institutions to interact with, with people who are less well off. But I think that if the mm-hmm. government starting to, the U.S. government, it's correctly starting to overlay metrics of like, we want your, your customers to be better off in a year than they were when they used your product for the first time. And that as a sort of a metric for a company has started to be applied for, um, for, for in Europe and the U.S. 
And I think that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. And I think so companies that are segmenting people more specifically and who are, bene- who are providing products which help smooth their income, help, um, help them pay lower fees, help them do more with less, and, that, and it helps them be better off in a year than they were now. All of those seem like good places to focus on when you're trying to, you know, make money on that underbanked population. And like, and I guess my last point on this will be counterintuitively, it's not always the case that more choice is better than less choice. I think there's a bit of a fallacy of choice in finance, where if you can see 100 choices and you pick one of them, you've made a good choice because you had 100 choices. But if those 100 choices are all pretty bad, it doesn't mean your choice you made was good. On the flip side of that, mm-hmm. especially when you're especially when you're in a in a difficult position and you can be taken advantage of because you have you know you you need money now or you need a product now or you have no other choices or whatever, it's sometimes the case that one good choice or two good choices that's thoughtful and appropriate for you that you just do as a default is better than a hundred bad choices of hundred people marketing to you and trying to trick you into using it. Um, and so I, I would I would suspect that there'll be a few larger companies that treat people fairly get a reputation for doing that that underbanked people will just automatically go to and use for everything that will both allow those companies to have big margins because they'll be using, they'll be servicing people in multiple, multiple ways, but they'll be doing so on the basis of a reputation for not being exploitative, for being responsible and being thoughtful. And there's a lot of companies emerging now that have that thesis of treat people well and make your reputation central to them using you in multiple products as an underbanked person, use big data and machine learning and new and new and new, although less big data, more machine learning, to really underwrite people more specifically for their specific needs and um, and and flaws. And lastly, you know, really start focusing, really start focusing on improving their lives and making sure that they're better off after they had to deal with you than they were before. That seems like a pretty decent framework, in my opinion, for this segment. And, I, and I'll, I'll stay away from saying specific companies, but companies that are doing that approach, I like. Got it. That makes perfect sense. Um. So I think I'm out of questions. And thank you so much for your perspective and time. My this pleasure. Has been really, a lot, really helpful. A lot of fun. My pleasure. Um, I, I, and, and always happy to be helpful however I can be. So if anyone listening to this finds anything that's interesting, be, be pleased to continue the conversation with them. Um, and, uh, and again, just, just to start as an aside, uh, obviously the opinions I said today were my own and um, not those of uh, anyone else's or my friends. Thank you, Finn. Thank you.